the more I was in these rooms with these people, the first thing out of their mouths would be like, well, yeah, we have this overcriminalization problem, and we also have this mass incarceration problem, and they're related. And it's like, no, they're not. The same 10, 12 offenses have accounted for like 90% of all prisoners for the last 50 years. What are you talking about? The sort of main goal of a lot of people within that movement was actually just decarceration for its own sake, and I, that was something I just didn't agree with. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here I am in New York City. Our friends at the Manhattan Institute are kind enough to let us borrow their studio for an afternoon to record some episodes. And sitting with me is one of their top scholars, the Nick O'Neill Fellow and head of research for policing and public safety, Rafael Mangual. Rafael, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's here I am on your home turf. And, yeah, and this yeah. is literally your, your home turf, you know, your, your city and obviously this great institution, which like Heritage and some others, really does lead the way when it comes to research. And, and I would say, and, and my colleagues at Heritage who work on policing and public safety would say that Manhattan's work on those issues and your work in particular is really important. And we're going to get into that. But uh, you're from New York. I am. I'm from the Gulf Coast. And what you might not yet know about Southerners is that we can't figure out if we can trust someone <laughs> until we ask them their story. Okay. You and I were visiting for a few minutes, so I already knew I can trust you. Good. Yeah. Good. You, you, you've been that bar. You're probably, you're probably now thinking, there's no way I can trust this guy. <laughs> no, but the point is, one of the things we try to do on this show is not just talk about important policy, which we're going to do with you because you're one of the luminaries of our movement. But explain to people, especially younger members of the audience who might be thinking, how can I make a difference for this great country? How you got into doing what you're doing? And now I know you're a baseball fan, maybe even player, mixed martial arts guy, so I have to be on my best <laughs> Mixed martial arts fan, but fan? I, I oh, promise okay. you I'm not dangerous at all. Okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, so, you know, really kind of my story is just one based in following my passion. I did not know I cared very deeply about these issues until I was confronted with them for the first time. And that story kind of begins late in life in college. Um, I remember sitting in a second year sociology class and uh, basically our professor would have a guest speaker once a week. So we had a Monday, Wednesday class and I think it was Wednesdays, you know, the first half hour or so would be a guest speaker. And one day this guest speaker was an ex-con guy who had just gotten out of prison and he gave this speech and it was basically just a diatribe, just, you know, the police are racist, the criminal justice system is racist, I was railroaded, I'm innocent, and, you know, New Yorkers, like Southerners, also don't really trust people <laughs> inherently. It's a great commonality, Yes, um, and I just remember sitting there and listening and wanting to connect with this guy, but I just uh, viscerally could not get on his page. And I think part of that was a function of you know, growing up around people who had been involved in the criminal justice system, who had been arrested and incarcerated, family, friends. Um, also, I am the son of a New York City cop. So, you know, I grew up around cops. I grew up with a cop. Um, you know, my experiences were generally pretty positive. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I remember at the end of the talk feeling like I wanted to speak up but not knowing what to say. I didn't have any real base of knowledge uh, on which I could push back and, and dig into. And so I went home that day and I got on uh, Ask Jeeves, which was the um, search engine of choice. Yeah, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> um, People, and, a lot of the audience won't even know it. Yeah, was. yeah. That was that was before Google was Google. It was Ask Jeeves for me, um, Yahoo maybe occasionally. And uh, I, I came across the work of the Manhattan Institute 
went down a rabbit hole over the next couple of years of just you know conservative thought and um, particularly thought on these issues. And uh, by the end of college, I pretty much knew that I wanted to do this for a living, which is strange. I mean, you ask most kids in college what they want to do, and I think maybe one out of a million will say, I want to work for a think tank. <laughs> um, but I, I, I started looking at the resumes of people in this space who I respected. And, you know, everyone who was really good at their job either had a PhD in economics or a law degree. And I did not want to go get a PhD in economics. So I went to law school and um, got very, very lucky in so far as I was able to land a job here right out. And you're not only the, the leader of that work here, along with some, some great colleagues of yours, but as I mentioned, for the entire movement. And so swerving from your story, which is obviously very relevant to the, the policy work that you do, to that policy work, what, how, how would you summarize the – how would you assess the situation of policing and public safety in the United States in 2023? Yeah, I mean that's a really big question. Uh, you know, it is – policing and public safety in the United States – you know, generally is one of the most misunderstood phenomenon or collections of phenomenon that, that you have. I mean, just the, everyone has an opinion on it. Very few people really understand what the intricacies are and what they look like, what the data say. Um, so you have a couple of different stories you can tell. I mean, the United States is an advanced society. We function very well. Um, and I think public safety and our public safety story is a big part of that. I mean, you look at cities like New York and, you know, for the most part, although things are certainly moving in the wrong direction these days, you know, it's a functioning city. And that can't happen without the provision of public safety that comes from institutions of law enforcement, particularly police. And so, if, you know, from that perspective, you can say that, you know, in the United States, we're kind of a global leader uh, on that front. I mean, there's certain parts of the world in which, you know, public Safety is not something that you can take for granted, at least at the level that many of us can here. Um, at the same time, you know, a lot of our history has been marred by, you know, really high levels of crime and relative to other parts of the world, particularly Western European democracies, we have a lot of serious violence. Um, and that violence concentrates in really small pockets of our country where people who are not as fortunate as, as you and I are kind of stuck living with unbelievably high levels of violence. And, you know, that has gotten worse, I think, over the last decade, decade plus. And one of the reasons for that has to do with that misunderstanding about what it the role of criminal justice is, how it actually works. And I think part of America's story right now, we're in a chapter that is really based on this idea that that misunderstanding of these institutions has led to an erosion of those institutions, an erosion of their power, an erosion of their ability to provide um, one of the most important public benefits that any government can provide, which is public safety. And, you know, we're seeing you know, crime numbers move in the wrong direction. We're seeing indications of disorder move in the wrong direction. And I think ultimately what we're going to see if we don't get that problem fixed quickly is we're going to see cities in general start moving in the wrong direction because crime does thrive in and around cities. And cities, I think, are also incredibly important to just America's structure. They're centers of economic dynamism. I don't think we could be the USA that we are today without big functioning popular cities that people want to come to that, you know, thought leaders come and, and, and exchange ideas in. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of in the middle of a pendulum swing back in the opposite direction that we were swinging in the 1990s, where 
people were kind of fed up with where crime was and, you know, decided that, okay, it's time to get tough. It's time to invest in policing. It's time to, you know, invest in our criminal justice system more broadly. You saw things like three strikes regimes and truth and sentencing regimes and mandatory minimums. Um, and, you know, the, the appetite for those sorts of interventions, I think, has eroded with public safety such that we're kind of victims of our own success, right? I mean, we had this massive, massive decline in serious crime over the course of the 90s and early aughts. And, you know, as that happened, people became less and less comfortable with having a robust enforcement mechanism in place. And, um, you know, there is a very effective uh, um, public uh, awareness campaign, I guess you could call it, a uh, public relations campaign against these institutions of law enforcement, um, rooted in this idea that these institutions are draconian, that they're racially oppressive. And that's a powerful narrative. It's it's the narrative that I was confronted with as a young college student. And I watched, you know, about 200 people in that lecture hall, and I watched people's head nod. And it was a very compelling story. You know, everyone wants to be part of something important, I think. And what more important thing can you be a part of other than a fight against oppression? of fight against racism. And so, you know, if you become convinced that these institutions are sort of um, centers of, 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 of that problem, um, then it makes sense that, you know, you, you would fight back against them. And so, you know, part of the, the, the work that I do is sort of identifying where the gap is between the rhetoric about criminal justice in the U.S. and what the reality is and, and showing people that, you know, eroding these systems for the sake of just doing that as if that's a public policy good unto itself is incredibly misguided um, and so misguided in, in a bunch of different ways. But in one of the most ironic ways it's misguided is that it actually hurts the very communities that, you know, a lot of reformers say they're, they're out to help. It's an excellent summary. And, and I appreciated that. And I've, I've worked some in this, this policy space, which we were talking about off camera. We'll come back to that. In, in ways that I think will be helpful for our audience. But speaking of the audience, I know they had to appreciate that summary because there's so much there. And what I mean by that is, just as, as kind of a policy generalist, that as policing and public safety go, so goes the republic, right? Because all aspects of life – by definition, your your dad, the law enforcement officer, would probably say this, right? That And that's good and bad, right? And so I presume that's what motivated you to write this wonderful book, Criminal Injustice. Mm -hmm. And and this is recent, uh, out in 2022, right? Mm -hmm. And so tell us about the motivation, but also highlights, especially for people who say, man, Raphael's really intrigued me. I, I want to learn more. Yeah, so, you know, the, the motivation for the book was really a, just I had kind of reached a point where doing this work, working in this space for so many years, I had just been confronted with story after story after story of some heinous crime. You know, a, a child gets hit with a stray bullet or, you know, um, a single mom is murdered in, the sh in broad daylight. And it's like every time you see one of these stories and there's an arrest, you look into the history of the person arrested and it's like they've got 15 prior arrests. They were out on probation. They were out on parole. They were awaiting trial. And it's like you have this huge problem that's been getting worse since 2015, right? This big spike in murders in 2015 and 16 kind of leveled off in 2017 and 18, and then huge spike in 2020. Um, and that problem is driven by repeat offenders, by people whom the system has every reason and legal authority to apprehend and detain. And 
through a political choice is not doing that. And that political choice has consequences for communities that I really care about. I mean, communities that I came from, communities that I have family in. You know, my, my wife is from the, the west side of Chicago. I have family on the west side of Chicago. It is not a safe place to live. It's not the kind of place, you know, that I would want to raise my family if I had the choice. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned living in some of these communities is that, you know, I'm a beneficiary of an incredible privilege. There's so much talk about privilege in this country, right? <laughs> you know, but but one of the privileges that that goes unnoticed is the privilege to be able to live in safety. I mean, crime is something that we talk about in very national terms, which is another kind of motivating factor was sort of pushing back on this uh, tendency, this colloquialism to talk about America's crime problem or New York's crime problem. I'm guilty of it, you know, myself. And it's, it's just easier to do. It, it helps people wrap their head around the problem. But crime's a very hyper-local phenomenon. And the distribution of safety is so incredibly uneven. I mean, you know, just to, to, to kind of put it in perspective, if you look at the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago, collectively, they had a homicide rate in 2019 of over 61 per 100,000. That year, the national homicide rate was about five per 100,000. If you took the 10 safest neighborhoods in Chicago, it was about two per 100,000. And if you pick out some of the most dangerous neighborhoods within that, that group of 10, you get places like West Garfield Park, which had a homicide rate of 131 per 100,000. So I just think about what it is like. I mean, just to put that in perspective, that is more dangerous than the battlefields of Afghanistan That's and Iraq. Right. And so, you know, if you think about it from this perspective, like say you're a mom in 2002, sending your 18-year-old son off to the Marines, knowing that there's a good chance that he's going to end up in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, it is only natural for you to be incredibly fearful to make that decision. And that fear is going to be based on the likelihood that they may not be able to come home, let alone in one piece. Um, now, imagine what it's like living in a neighborhood where you have to send your son to school every single day in a place with a homicide rate that's significantly higher than those battlefields and what the psychological toll of that is. And, and so having understood that, having experienced crime, having you know known crime, serious crime victims, and just been bombarded with these stories by virtue of the work that I do, I just kind of got fed up and wanted to put something out there that just pushed back on the sort of two policy you know agenda items that I saw as likeliest to exacerbate the risks of the sort of problems I think we all want to avoid, and that's decarceration and depolicing. And you know the idea that we have far too many people in prison, so much that so much so that we should release half of them and that this won't have any public policy consequences, that this won't have any public safety consequences. It's just silly to me. And I, I wanted to get out there and make that case. And, and this book was the byproduct of that. Well, I'm really grateful for the book in a, in a general sense, but also in a particular sense, as you probably know, as as someone who is participating in conservative criminal justice reform, which was well-intentioned. I'm sure you, you would posit that too. And, and that's what I know to be the case. I, I I got tired of it just to be kind of of uh, blunt. A few years ago, when when I thought that that really well intentioned reform got hijacked, and I won't mention names, of course, um, but it got hijacked by people who simply wanted to undo policing and public safety. And the the end, which was always human flourishing and justice, which go hand in hand, became instead how quickly we can reduce the number of incarcerated people. Yeah. And that's when I realized as, as a conservative, no adjective in front of that, 
just a conservative. That that didn't make sense because the heart of conservatism or one of the parts of the heart of conservatism is understanding the rule of law. And so I, I, I have kind of that long-winded lead-up to the question for you to know. You can say whatever you want to say about conservative criminal justice reform. You wouldn't offend me anyway. But I think we're, we're at a point, at an inflection point in the center-right movement in this country where we realize even if we posit that that was well-intentioned, uh, that is now concluded. That we need to be focused on what you're doing. Yeah, I think I think the the crime problem has to absolutely take priority over you know some of the the agenda items that you know were at the top of the list of things that the conservative reform movement wanted to achieve. And I got to say, when I started at the Manhattan Institute, that was my focus was conservative criminal justice reform. I I started writing about overcriminalization and particularly you know legislative and regulatory overcrim and. I remember going to these meetings and conferences and you'd be on a panel and someone would, you know, we're here to talk about the fact that, you know, at, at, at the national level, there was something at the time like 350 to 400,000 criminally enforceable rules and regulations. I remember thinking this is ridiculous, right? I can't think of 300 things that you should go to jail for, let alone 300,000. I mean, you it's know, really hard. I mean, just if you stop and think about that, yeah, it just seems impossible. It, it's crazy. I mean, it, you know, I, I remember being just confounded by the fact that the ABA had actually tried to count all the criminal laws on the books and couldn't because the criminal law was proliferating so quickly that they actually couldn't keep up. And so that was a problem that, you know, I I thought was a serious one that deserved attention. But the more I was in these rooms with these people, the first thing out of their mouths would be like, well, yeah, we have this overcriminalization problem and we also have this mass incarceration problem and they're related. It's like, no, they're not. The same 10, 12 offenses have accounted for like 90% of all prisoners for the last 50 years. What are you talking about? And I realized, you know, very early on that, you know, the, the sort of main goal of a lot of people within that movement was actually just decarceration for its own sake. And I, that was something I just didn't agree with. And so it, it didn't take very long for me to kind of switch my focus over uh, to sort of traditional law enforcement issues. And, and a lot of that had to do with the, the homicide rise that we saw in 2015 and 16. And, you know, so so I, I do see that there's hope, uh, certainly uh, among conservatives, that you know we've identified what the right issue is for our time, what we need to focus on, um, what requires the most energy. Um, but I do think we have an uphill battle. I mean, the, the, the criminal justice reform movement, you know, has just so much momentum. Um, yeah, I just wrote a piece for City Journal that should be out um, soon about this. But I mean, if you just think about the amount of movement that we've seen on criminal justice reform. I mean, we have massive declines in, in the uh, incarcerated population. We have massive declines in both jails and prisons. We have declines in the number of police officers, declines in arrests, declines in stops and frisks in cities across the All kinds of legislative reforms have been enacted, bail reforms, discovery reforms, juvenile justice reforms, parole reforms, decriminalization efforts. The list goes on and on and on. All kinds of police oversight, federal consent decrees. At no point does it seem to be the case that the left or the reform movement sees a light at the end of the tunnel? They want to keep going. Right. You know, so, you know, this is this is really problematic in part because we still don't even fully understand the effect of all of this, all those levers that we've pulled. And yet they want to continue to go more and more and more without seeming to grapple with the fact of the downside risk, which is that, hey, this might actually lower the transaction cost of committing crime and raise the transaction cost of enforcing the law to such a degree that we're going to get more crime. Um, and I think that's exactly what's happening. And so, so you, you think know, that, that's a working hypothesis? Yeah. I mean, I certainly do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, when you think about just 
incar- let's just box off incarceration, right? You think about what that is supposed to do. You know, people talk about incarceration in light of the sort of four penological lens that it's intended to serve. You have incapacitation, deterrence, retribution, and rehabilitation. But incapacitation, I think, really should be the main focus of, of our movement here because you know, rehabilitation, I think it's good to invest in, but we don't really have any clue how to rehabilitate people reliably, let alone how to do that at scale. We have 1.9 million people incarcerated in this country. Um, you know, retribution, I think it's good for society's sort of desire to punish bad conduct to be satiated because I don't want to encourage vigilante justice. And, it, you know, if they don't have faith that the system will do the job, they will take it into their own hands. And that's just not a world I want to live in. Um, deterrence, there's, a, you know, a decent amount of literature in support of the idea that if you raise the transaction cost of committing crime enough that you can reduce it. Um, and and so I do think that's a legitimate end. But incapacitation, I think, is the big thing. Again, when you see these stories of terrible crimes committed by people with, you know, 15, 20, 30 prior arrests who, you know, have active criminal justice statuses, the same question gets asked over and over again. So what were they doing out on the street? And it's like, yes, that is the question, right? And the answer is, is it's a policy choice. It's a policy choice. And so what we really need to do is just kind of understand that when you cut the prison population by 25% over a short period of time, that's going to have consequences if, in fact, the people who are in prison today are likely to commit crimes. And we know that they are because we have data telling us that. The recidivism numbers in this country are atrocious. About 80 to 83% of people who get released from state prison will go on to be rearrested at least once over 10 years. On average, they'll get rearrested five times. A good number of them will be rearrested for serious violent crimes. And that's really just a drop in the bucket of the total crime that that population commits because what do we know? Most crime doesn't get reported and most crime that gets reported doesn't get solved. That's just a reality. The, the, the clearance rates for the, the violent index offenses that are tracked by the FBI hovers around 47%. For the property index offenses, it's about 17 to 18%. So you have this massive amount of criminal conduct that goes unanswered for, right? You have this huge population of prisoners that continues to get arrested post-release. We can look at their criminal histories pre-incarceration, and we know that this was a pre-existing pattern. The typical state prisoner has about 10 prior arrests and five prior convictions. So these are not people who've been denied second chances, which is what the sort of central narrative is, right? We have second chance month um, in the United States, which always makes me laugh because it's like, who is it that's been denied second? I mean, you know. Uh, it's, it's not a large number. No, it's not. My, my colleague, Heather McDonald, a few years ago had this wonderful line where she said, uh, a, a multi-year sentence in prison is akin to a lifetime achievement. Award for persistence in criminal offending because it's just so. I think hard. only Heather could come up oh, with that. Oh, yeah. No, she's fantastic. <laughs> um, and, and I think she's exactly right. And that's exactly what the data show. And so, you know, when you have people who have dedicated massive amounts of money and massive amounts of effort to reducing that number, the number of people incarcerated, you are increasing the risk of crime committed by a population that has already shown themselves unwilling to play by society's rules. And, you know, I wanted to highlight that with this book, but I also wanted to make the point that, again, that risk, not going to be evenly distributed, right? You could release everyone from prison today, and Greenwich, Connecticut, probably not going to get all that unsafe, right? I mean, the really safe enclaves will likely stay that way because they're safe by virtue of, you know, the fact that they just have really law-abiding people, right? They, the, their residents are pro-social in their dispositions, and, and that's that. But the, the, the small pockets where crime concentrates, where you, know, you have the vast majority of residents just want to go about their lives, 
They, you know, they're good, law-abiding people. In the highest crime neighborhood you can pick out, the majority of people are good, law-abiding good people. Yes, and they deserve safety too. And it's like we're it's it's, a, it's like as if you're walking into a casino. You walk up to the roulette table. You say, you know, give me ten thousand dollars in chips, but you're playing with the four hundred one k of the guy next to you, like you know, well, that's just one of the most frustrating things about it. It's like we're just rolling the dice with the lives of people who live in places that uh, I suspect a lot of people in the reform movement would never dare send their kids to school in or walk through at night. Yeah, it's not unlike the opponents to school choice, right? As, as, as long as they get to send their kids to the schools of their choice, who needs school choice, yeah. and some of the same folks. But I, I want to key in on something that, that you mentioned regarding rehabilitation mm-hmm. for two reasons. The first is I have been part of some of the efforts to look at or to perform academic studies, yep. to look at the data on that in the early and mid phases of the so-called conservative criminal justice reform movement. And, and so I'm interested in it. But the second is to get your assessment – of this statement, it seems at best those studies would show mixed results. And if we wanted to be pessimistic, which I think neither of us do, especially for conservative friends in the movement still interested in criminal justice reform, we would say there's no reason whatsoever to think that that investment in rehabilitation has done anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's one of the most – Disappointing literature is, if, it is you, disappointing. You know, if you read it because it, it's, an, it's something that we want to have an answer to. No one wants to write people off as just, you know, incorrigible and that's it. Um, you know, there's, there's no saving them. But, you know, there is a point at which society has to draw a line and say, OK, enough. You've, you've, had, an, you've had your chances. Um, we don't have confidence that, that we can fix you. And as a result of that, we're not going to continue to let you victimize members of your community. Um, but yeah, when I, when I read the, the literature on rehabilitation, what I see is that at best you have mixed results, right? And yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to put it. Um, you know, the, I would say the overwhelming weight of the literature leans in the direction that we don't have a reliable formula for rehabilitating the type of people that tend to populate our prisons and jails. Um, there are some programs that do show promise. I think what you see when you look at the assessments of those programs is that the observation periods are relatively short. So we don't know whether there's a regression back toward the mean over time. So maybe over 12 months or 24 months, you might see some positive results, but we still don't know what's going to happen at 48 months or 10 years, right? And and the other thing you're going to see is that they're very intensive in terms of resources, right? They require a lot of one-on-one therapy, small group therapy. Um, you know, this is like things that are happening multiple times a week or at least once a week. That's really hard to scale up when you're talking about 1.9 million people incarcerated in the United States, let alone however many people are in the system you know, as parolees or probationers. Um, and so that's a, a massive challenge, right? I mean, the, as I mentioned in the book, the CDC predicts over the next 10 years that we're going to have about a 25% shortfall of qualified mental health workers across different areas of mental health work. And so the idea that there even exists a population of qualified mental health workers that could implement programs, assuming that we had them uh, across a population of prisoners that big, that would be willing to work in those settings for that kind of pay, um, I think is another really big hurdle to the idea that we have this problem solved. And so you know, the other thing I think you see is a lot of selection bias. I mean, so a lot of these studies, as I'm sure you know, 
sometimes people have to opt into the program. So you're already dealing with a subset of prisoners who are, you know, maybe more amenable to change um, by virtue of the fact that they cared enough to to apply, right? Some programs exclude certain types of offenders. So they may exclude lifers. They may exclude, um, you know, people who have been convicted of, of violent sex offenses or whatever. And so, you know, again, that doesn't necessarily tell you that this is scalable across the whole population. Um, and again, you see these really short observation periods. And so, you know, when you extend the observation period, for as some of these studies have done, you tend to see progression back toward the mean, which, you know, again, is not something I take pleasure in noting. Um, you know, it sucks. I wish I wish there yeah, were nor, an answer, but... Nor do I. Uh, yeah. And I'd say that because I'd still have good friends who are, who are working on criminal justice reform. They're certainly moving the direction that, that, that you are because they're smart people. But so I don't say it to be gratuitous, but just to say... As, as a, a bit of a social scientist, as a policy person, when I started asking those questions about those rehabilitation efforts, all of them well-intentioned. Sure. Not just for the people in them, but for the sake of, of looking for that rehabilitation program that could be scaled to your point. I never once got a satisfactory answer, yeah. just as an academic. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, if this were in graduate school and this were a student of mine, I simply could not say that you've gotten the results that prove your thesis. Right. And I lament that yeah. because especially in the United States, the land of redemption, yep. we want rehabilitation to work. The headline is we haven't found a program that does that can be scaled on the level that it needs to. And that's that's unfortunate on the human level. Yeah, it is. And, you know, but I, I think it points in a direction that, you know, uh, it points to something that we've recognized in a few other contexts. And that is that real change comes from the individual, comes from the inside. It, someone has to decide I'm done. I want to make my life better. Um, and sometimes, the, you know, the research does seem to show that early intervention of the criminal justice system can actually be that shock to the system. Um, you know, I have, I have personal acquaintances and family members who have been incarcerated who said that was that did it. That did it. You know, but it was early. You know, um, people have to get. Sometimes it's the birth of a child that take. You know, there's fascinating literature showing that there's a a good bit of desistance from criminal activity from people who have records and active statuses after their child is born. Um, you yeah, know, another so, good reason to reject the population bomb thesis. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's literature showing actually that incarceration can reduce crime by actually taking people away from their criminal network. So, you know. This is actually one wrinkle in the, the reform movement because a lot of reformers want to keep people incarcerated closer to home so that it can make it easier for their family to visit them, et cetera, which is an understandable um, goal to pursue. But there's some papers out there um, showing that actually the further away from home you get incarcerated, the less likely you are to recidivate because your criminal ties tend to erode more quickly. Um, and you're also not as guaranteed to go back to your you know, home neighborhood and you may start your life somewhere else where you know, your surroundings are a bit more conducive to a positive outcome. And so, you know, the, the main message I wanted to get across with the book is that, you know, these topics are really complicated. You know, the idea that someone just has all the answers is nonsense. And because it's complicated, I think we have to be very sober and careful about what levers we pull, particularly when we're talking about levers that might exacerbate the risk of criminal offending. Because, again, that's not a risk that we bear evenly. And I think we owe it to people who don't have the good fortune to live in really safe places, right? I mean, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, but when my wife and I um, uh, got pregnant with our son, we were living in East Harlem. And it was a great building, but it was a terrible neighborhood. And there was a lot of crime and a lot of disorder. And, you know, as soon as we got, we found out we were pregnant, we were like, well, 
I think it's time to move. And, you know, we had the ability to break our lease and pick a safer neighborhood and do that. But, you know, across the street in the Douglas houses, people don't have that option. Um, and so, you know, again, it's just that's the message that I really want people to come away with. It's like these are complicated questions. The idea that we can just cut 50 or, you know, do all these other things that, you know, are really popular, defund the police. That's a that's a simplistic answer to a very complicated question. You should always be suspicious of simplistic answers. And those answers create a risk, an exacerbated risk, that is going to fall on the least advantaged members of our society. And that should matter. It matters a great deal. So a practical question for you, if you don't mind, applying the lessons from your book and from your research. If you were advising a mayor of you, you pick the city or a governor, you pick the state, Red state, blue state, red city, blue city, in between. What are the two or three policies that you would encourage them to enact, politics aside, that actually cut to the heart of restoring public safety? Um, Invest in policing. Um, More cops. I mean, the the United States across the country, I mean, you pick a major city, very few are sort of operating at the level that they want to be operating at. I can't think of one. Are there? I mean, in terms of major cities? No, I really can't think of a, a major city right now that has not been hit by the recruitment and retention crisis. So invest in policing and and don't just throw money at it blindly. Try and figure out a way to recruit highly motivated, high-functioning people who really want to do this job, right? What you don't want to do is what a lot of cities have been forced to do, which is lower standards. Um, Because what's going to happen is the delta between the average cop and the average perp is going to start to go like this, and that's not going to be good for anybody. And um, it's certainly not going to be good for that institution. And, you know, lots of people who follow this, you know, can tell lots of crazy stories about the corruption in policing in the 1970s. And some horror stories. And some emerging horror stories just in the last few weeks. Exactly. No disrespect to law enforcement officers the opposite right because we respect them so much exactly. we don't want those standards to, to go down exactly but you know one of the best things that ever happened to policing was the professionalization of it and so but that takes investment you have to make that job attractive and you have to make it attractive to people who have options because right now people who have options are just not choosing to take that job and and why would they right i mean you're gonna be demonized you're you know gonna be in legal jeopardy and you know possibly unfair situations um and you're not gonna be paid very well so That's number one. Number two is on the incarceration front, you have to draw a line and set a standard as to how much repeated criminal conduct you're willing to tolerate as a society. You know, whether it's three strikes or five strikes or 10 strikes, figure out what the right number is, draw that line in the sand and enforce it. And then, you know, the the other thing is something that's actually outside of the control of policymakers, and it's the politics part of this. You know, this is in a lot of ways a political problem. The public has to do its part to understand these issues and you know to inform themselves when they make really important voting decisions for offices like DA um, judgeships. Um, you know that 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 matters. You because the criminal justice system, the laws that you have on the books, are only as good as the people tasked with enforcing them and administering them. And so you can have really great cops without a great DA, or with a DA who is actively trying to undermine the mission of the cops, as you have in some parts of this country right now. Um, you know those efforts are going to matter less and less. Right? If you look at you know some of the research on the effect of policing on crime, what you'll find is that a good portion of that effect comes through incapacitation, through the fact that 
when you have more cops, they make more arrests. Those arrests result in the absence of criminal actors from the street, and that absence means a reduction in crime. Kind well, of a math problem. Right. But if you have cops who continue to go out there and make arrests, and then a DA who won't prosecute or a judge who won't hand down a harsh sentence, the efforts of those cops becomes much more muted. Um, and so you know, those are really the, the, the main things. Put a cap on repeated criminal conduct. Draw a line. Say, you know, this is your whatever, fourth felony, fifth felony, whatever the number is, conviction, that's it. You're getting a 10-year sentence enhancement. Or, you know, get people off the street for long enough to give their communities the room that they need to breathe and grow and recover from the criminal conduct that they endured. Because, you know, that's another – we think about crime really in terms of, like, the offender and the the victim. But it just goes so far beyond that. I mean, you know, you – First off, it goes far beyond the incident, right? You, you know, it's like, okay, there was a burglary, right? So family comes home, they find their home ransacked and their possessions gone. It doesn't stop there. It's not, okay, this is the financial amount of what was stolen and what it took to fix whatever was broken. It's the fact that that family may not feel comfortable in that house forever. And in two months, it may get to the point where they have to move and maybe they take a big hit on the house. And just psychologically now, you know, that's that's a big issue. And then that, you know, that story goes into the ether in the neighborhood and that hurts the reputation. So potential buyers, maybe don't, don't pick that house. And over time, you know, if that happens over and over again, communities can really, really suffer. So the ripple effects of crime just can get really, really far out there. I mean, there's, there's research showing, for example, that stu- high school students will perform statistically significantly worse on standardized tests if they live within a certain radius of a homicide versus kids in their same class with the same backgrounds who live outside that radius. That's telling. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, just think about it. You, know, you, you mentioned uh, you know, at the beginning of our conversation that public safety is one of those things that society needs to function. And I'm, I'm just thinking back to law school. I had a property professor who you know, said the importance of property law was that it gives us the confidence to go out and participate in the economy because without property law, we would just all resort to the 12-gauge solution. And someone said, what's the 12-gauge solution? Well, you sit on your porch with a 12-gauge shotgun. You guard all of your belongings because you don't have any confidence that there's a system in place to do that for you. And it's a it, vital part of our system. It is. It is. And so if you live in a place where crime is just a fact of daily life, that has a psychological impact. It impacts the decisions you make about the money you're going to spend, how much time you're going to spend away from your house, whether you go out at night, which streets you go down or don't go down, you know, which kids you send your which schools you send your kid to, which kids you let your kids hang out with. I mean, you know, and it's just it's it's a really really complex problem and it becomes really harmful and toxic for a neighborhood. And so, yeah, that's why I do what I do. No, I'm glad you you do what you do and you're very good at explaining it. And I would sit here and talk to you for several hours about it, but I'll ask you one last question, Raphael, and that is kind of the proverbial crystal ball question. Okay. How optimistic are you that in this decade, the 2020s, the United States is once again, because we've done this before, going to get it right on policing and public safety? Um, I'd say it's 50-50. Um, yeah, I'd say it's 50-50. I mean, look, I think, again, we're in the middle of a pendulum swing back to the left on this issue. Um, and I, I think that swing has a lot of momentum, and so it's going to take a while to slow that pendulum down, let alone get it moving back in the direction of equilibrium. Um, I do think the reform movement still has a lot of momentum. I think that comes through in 
you know, uh, the laws that are continuing to be enacted, the policies that are continuing to be proposed, on the lack of, of you know, backlash, I guess, maybe, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, uh, of a sort of swing back. I mean, we haven't seen a collection of, of you know, sort of tougher approaches um, come to fruition yet. I hope, however, that by virtue of the fact that we have this relatively recent history to draw on, that it will take less time for that pendulum to come back and that it will, won't swing as far past the point of equilibrium as it did maybe in the 1960s and 70s um, that I think created the mess that we saw in the late 70s and 80s and, and early 90s that, that we cleaned up you know, over the course of the, the 1990s and 2000s. So we have that history that we can draw on. It's really up to us. Um, I guess if I you know, had a gun to my head and had to make a prediction, I would say cities are going to continue to suffer. Um, I think you know we've seen a kind of political fracturing of this country where people are sort of collecting themselves and moving, voting with their feet. And so uh, I think actually rather than the, the cities leading the way as they did in the 1990s, you're going to see you know, some suburban, ex-urban departments uh, around major metros um, you know, maybe start to uh, sort of – get tougher. You'll see some judge elections in more rural parts of the country kind of go in a certain direction. And um, that will hopefully uh, prompt a movement. Um, but you know, I'm not terribly hopeful in the short run, that's for sure. Yeah, it does seem to me that if I think about places like, like Texas or my new home state of Virginia, that that's what's happening. The suburban, exurban communities are, are standing up. But in the middle of them, there's a 90% chance that there is a DA who is not enforcing the law. And, and my, my colleagues, Cully Stimson, Zach Smith, have a, a book coming out. It's not the purpose of making this common, although it's, it's certainly praiseworthy, as your book is, on rogue prosecutors. And certainly one of the motivations in my wanting to sit down with you, in addition to just trying to help a, a friend at a friendly institution out with, with books, is to show the conservative movement that the, the chapter of conservative criminal justice reform is concluded – and the new chapter, which you're writing rather literally, is also one that is well-intentioned and focused on human flourishing. And it, in many ways, has to be a return to what we got right for 10 or 15 years. And hopefully the entire movement will follow Manhattan and Heritage as we chart that course, always looking for opportunities for rehabilitation, but recognizing that this decade-long experiment has only been that. It's been a well-intentioned one that's been hijacked by the, the radical left, not just the yeah. left, the radical yeah. left. And it's, it's time to bring it to an end. So, Rafael Mangual, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit with me. We, we wish you the best with your work and, of course, wish Manhattan the best with everything that you all do. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. Obviously heavy hitting, but it's something that affects all of us because if we continue to lose on the issues of policing and public safety, we lose the very basis of what makes America America. And that is, as our friend Raphael said, protecting the rule of law. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.